So great to have you along for Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. Maybe it's time to look back and see what we can learn about ourselves from that age that our grandparents lived through. John Steinbeck captured the Depression years powerfully, as I'm sure you learned in high school. And he may have something to tell us about ourselves nearly a century later. William Souter is the author of several biographies, including one of Rachel Carson and another on John James Audubon. His latest is Mad at the World, A Life of John Steinbeck. Welcome to Constant Wonder. Hi, Tannery. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Do you see connections between Steinbeck's themes and our current moment? Oh, I definitely do. You know, John Steinbeck died uh, about 50 years, a little over 50 years ago. And the books that really made his reputation were written several decades before that, as you said, in the, in the 1930s mainly. And uh, those books, uh, several of them dealt with, you know, one of the uh, most uh, profound calamities of the 20th century, which was the Great Depression. And as you just alluded to, the similarities between then and now are rather striking. You had... Um, the forced migration of dispossessed and displaced people. In this case, it was our own people, our own citizens, who were moving from the Midwest that had been devastated by drought and by dust storms, and, and uh, they were on the move to the West, to California. And uh, at the same time, you had this uh, huge income disparity between uh, the haves and the have-nots that we still have today. And of course, although it wasn't understood well at the time, uh, you know, the climate had betrayed humankind, and uh, particularly in the Midwest, with these uh, long, protracted droughts and, and terrible heat spells that just made it almost impossible to live, and certainly impossible to, to farm, which was what most of these uh, refugees, as they became, had been doing uh, before then. So uh, the, uh, the comparisons between then and now are rather striking. And what I think Steinbeck says to us uh, across all these years and about both situations is that it wouldn't hurt to feel a little empathy for your fellow human. Um, and I, I think that that was his, one of his great talents, and he had several, but one of, his, one of his really most profound talents was that he was not content to let the, uh, the faceless and the invisible um, among us just go unrecognized and ignored. He, he was interested in the people that society kind of pushed to the side and ignored. Uh, that was certainly true with the um, with the migrants in California, although they were not ignored, but they were definitely being um, deprived of the most basic kinds of human rights. And so, uh, the one thing that Steinbeck could never abide was a bully, and whether that was you know one person or an entire system. And he didn't like to see anybody. Um, uh, put upon or preyed upon, and so that really animated those those wonderful books of the 1930s, like of Mice and Men and the Grapes of Wrath, and and uh, and other uh, Steinbeck works that probably a lot of people, a lot of your listeners, probably read in high school. Mm-hmm. Well, what was his family's economic status? Was it similar to these migrants, or, or not so much? No, no. Steinbeck came from a. Uh, a middle-class and striving family. Um, he was born in, in uh, Salinas, California, uh, kind of in the heart of the uh, uh, Salinas Valley, a very fertile agricultural area, sometimes known as the uh, salad bowl of the world because of the uh, lettuce production there. And um, his father tried his hand at several, he was a bookkeeper for a while, but he ended up uh, getting um, a government job as the treasurer of Monterey County, which was a job that he held on to uh, for most of his life. Uh, they were not prosperous by any means, but they lived in a very, very nice house in a very nice part of Salinas. And Steinbeck was, grew up in what we would certainly recognize as middle-class circumstances. Um, he was a different kind of kid. He was a bit of a loner and um, uh, also a little bit of a contrarian. He, uh, he often pretended in school to uh, not know the answers when the teachers would call on him, even though everybody knew that he did know the answers. He just had a sort of perverse sensibility. Um, and uh, from a very, very early age was, uh, was fascinated by stories and by storytelling and um, kind of grew up with the, the knowledge that someday he wanted to be a writer. 
And so was did he excel at that from an early age? Well, we think so. Um, he certainly uh, his in school. His the teachers often read his essays, his class essays. He was a good writer from the beginning. And uh, what nobody knew was that he was uh, quietly, late at night in his uh, upstairs bedroom of the big house they lived in, was uh, was writing. And by the time he grad- graduated from high school, he actually had quite a sizable collection of manuscripts. And some of those he he actually sent out to magazines hoping that they might be published and, and the the funny thing is he was um, he was so shy and so nervous about any kind of fame or celebrity or recognition and this is something that by the way followed him throughout his life up to and and including when he won the the Nobel Prize in literature uh he hated the whole idea of fame and celebrity but in those early days in in high school he he would send these pieces out to magazines he would not um, include his name or his return address. He would just sort of wait to see if they published them. <laughs> and I, think, I think the one thing he was worried about was that, that, that somebody might uh, write to him or call him up and and want to talk to him. And so uh, it was a um, it was a sort of a strange apprenticeship. And then he went to Stanford after high school, where he became more serious about his writing. And did any of those stories ever get published that he sent off? Uh, you know, well, with no return not- address. Not directly. However, uh, one of his classmates, and I think as far as I know, this was the only one of his classmates who Steinbeck uh, made privy to this, uh, uh, saw some of these stories that Steinbeck had written in high school uh, during their senior year. And Steinbeck actually read several of them to him. He, he thought that his friend thought that the stories were really, really good. And he especially remembered one that was about a pony. And, of course, uh, you know, later in life, Steinbeck wrote a series of stories, a sort of a suite of stories called The Red Pony, which was based on his own experience with a pony his father had given him when he was quite young. And uh, it is one of Steinbeck's most subtle and affecting works. I love The Red Pony. Uh, It's not as often mentioned as Of Mice and Men or The Pearl, or certainly The Grapes of Wrath, and, and several, probably several other things, Cannery Road, Travels with Charlie. Now, these are all books that people seem to uh, know better than they know The Red Pony, although a lot of people read that, have read that story when they were younger. It is exquisite, and I think um, really, really uh, exhibits some of its very finest writing. So uh, I don't know if that's literally the mm-hmm. same story, uh, uh, you know, revised and, and amended uh, as an adult that he had written as a kid, but um, he certainly had the spark of the idea for it, I think, at that point. Well, when he gets to Stanford, does he get more serious about writing and actually submitting stuff um, in hopes to be a professional writer? Uh, yes and no. So uh, he, Steinbeck was not the best student or the most conscientious student. He really wasn't interested in college except as uh, a place where he could uh, hopefully learn to write. And so he was pretty, pretty careless about attending class. He really only took the classes he cared about, which tended to be English classes and writing classes, and, and ignored a lot of other um, stuff. He was sort of in and out of school. Uh, over the course of several years before he finally left Stanford in 1925 uh, without having earned a degree. But he, he, did take, um, he did take one story writing class in particular. He took it two times, and it was taught by a, a, this kind of legendary um, English instructor at Stanford named Edith Merrilies, who was um, a published author herself and uh, eventually wrote a book about um, uh, story writing and, and was regarded by Steinbeck as an absolute a genius, and, and he um, he stayed in touch with her throughout his adult life and consulted with her on uh, works once he became a successful author. He published two, to your question, he published two stories in, um, in the campus uh, literary magazine, a short-lived one. Uh, both were um, uh, fantasies. Uh, well, one was a fantasy and the other was was kind of a strange story, uh, quite unbelievable, about a, uh, a young woman who uh, wanders off into um, wanders off into the countryside and ends up getting married to the foreman of a um, of a farm crew and, and then leaving him and and uh, it's, it was <laughs> it was a strange strange uh, bit of work and um, uh, neither of these stories were um, were memorable for any reason at all. He didn't have anything 
published until uh, several years later when uh, when a magazine bought one of his um, one of his short stories. Well, he ends up in New York, and he's not um, getting paid to write. He's actually working construction, I guess. And and something really tragic happens that kind of um, drives him out of that business and and to take his writing more seriously. Will you tell us that story? Uh, well, I think you're referring to the fact that when he when Steinbeck got so Steinbeck took a freighter from uh, Los Angeles to New York in uh, 1925, and, and uh, uh, he found work uh, as a construction worker on a Madison Square Garden, uh, uh, one of several iterations of Madison Square Garden. I think this was Madison Square Garden number three. And, um, and it was very, very demanding work. He was hauling cement in a wheelbarrow up the scaffolding into the upper reaches of uh, of uh, the building and a you know part of a huge crew that was doing this work um, and uh, I, I'm not sure if this is what you're referring to but one day he did one of his co-workers actually fell to his death and um, landed quite close to where Steinbeck happened to be standing warming his hands over a fire uh, he was glad to be done with that job uh, when it ended and um, he did manage to get work as a reporter with one of the New York papers that lasted only uh, a few weeks. He was a terrible reporter. He was really too shy for the job. He hated imposing on people or asking personal questions or requesting photographs. He did like being able to travel around the city and, and hear different stories, but um, but he was not good at um, at uh, being a newspaper man. And so that didn't last long. And uh, finally, out of money and kind of out of options, he went back, he got another freighter and, and uh, went back to uh, California and eventually, or very quickly actually, found work as a, uh, a winter caretaker at a, an estate uh, on the shore of Lake Tahoe. And that was where he retreated and finally wrote his first novel. Now, you have also written a biography on Rachel Carson. And Rachel Carson and John Steinbeck, um, these two people shared a common connection in a man named Ed Ricketts. Yep. Who, who was he? <laughs> uh, Edward Flanders Ricketts. Um, he, uh, Ed Ricketts was a marine biologist uh, who lived and worked uh, in Monterey. He owned what everyone referred to as the lab, which was uh, actually a company called Pacific Biological Supply that was on Cannery Row, sandwiched between two big sardine canneries. Uh, a very unusual little uh, small wooden building that was really the epicenter of this bohemian um, subculture that existed in, in, uh, in Monterey and in nearby Pacific Grove. That, and that included John Steinbeck and, uh, and uh, many of his friends, artists and, and, uh, and writers. And, and, uh, but Ricketts was Steinbeck's greatest friend in life, and he was uh, an expert in, um, in uh, the intertidal zone. He specialized in studying the invertebrates that live on the seashore, some of them, you know, underwater all the time. Some of them underwater at high tide and exposed at low tide. And, and that whole realm of starfish and anemones and, and crustaceans was, um, was that was Ricketts, Ricketts' whole world. And he, um, and he and Steinbeck got to be uh, great friends. And when I was working on Rachel Carson, uh, I found that she had modeled one of her books on uh, one of Ed Ricketts' books. Ed, Ed Ricketts had published a book called Between Pacific Tides about this ecosystem uh, of the intertidal zone. And, and Carson was working on something similar that, was, uh, that eventually became a book called The Edge of the Sea. And she, she con quite consciously modeled it on, on uh, Ricketts' uh, book. And so that was the connection for me. That's how I kind of got on to Ed Ricketts. And uh, you, you don't spend very much time with Ed Ricketts without getting interested in John Steinbeck. They are kind of inseparable in many people's minds. And certainly if you're out in that part of California and you tell people that you're interested in John Steinbeck and working on a book, they just assume that you're writing a book about Steinbeck and Ricketts because they, um, uh, they kind of are naturally combined in everyone's mind out there. Well, Steinbeck, Stein, Steinbeck took, you know, what was going on in the natural world, but he, what he's really famous for is, is his characters, um, the Jodes 
and is that how you say it, the Jodes? Yep. Uh, the Jode the- family from Oklahoma, they, they are the, uh, they're the principal characters in The Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. They're a family that is forced off their sharecropping farm in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl and, and undertake this very arduous trip in a uh, rickety uh, old truck, the entire family kind of crammed into this thing as a kind of rock down Route 66 on the way to California where they hope to find a better life. And, of course, like so many of the migrants, um, don't find a better life at all in the end. And um, so, yeah, I, it's interesting. You mentioned Steinbeck's characters, and I completely agree with you. Uh, one of the uh, most eminent critics of Steinbeck's time was a guy named Edmund Wilson, who wrote extensively about Steinbeck and who, I think, grudgingly admired Steinbeck, but his main complaint was that he, he thought Steinbeck was a very technically um, a competent writer, almost uh, a virtuoso in, in some of his books, but he complained that Steinbeck didn't create uh, believable characters because he was too preoccupied with um, the, the biology that, bio, excuse me, biology that he thought uh, applied to humans as well as to the the animal world. Evan Wilson kind of didn't get that. I don't. I don't think he he struggled to see what biology had to do with people. Well, and that's kind of what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how he connected these characters that we, we you know we remember them. We remember George and Lenny, um, but to a larger world. And how did he do that? And why is that important in his writing? Well, to, just to touch again on something I said a little bit earlier, uh, these were people without voices. These were people that nobody saw, or if they saw them, they simply passed them by and ignored them. Um, uh, I don't think, you know, the public had never heard someone like George Melton or Lenny Small talk about their lives and about what they cared about. Uh, and the same was true of the, uh, the kind of down-and-out uh, layabouts in, in, uh, in Cannery Row, this, this group of... Uh, of uh, kind of itinerant um, hangers-on who just kind of lived on the waterfront and did a little work now and then, but basically uh, just kind of existed from day to day, but in a fairly contented state of grace. And uh, Steinbeck found these characters admirable. And it wasn't so much, I think, that he admired their lack of material success in life. I think what he admired was that they, they had better characteristics, that they were, in general, that they were honest and they were loyal, and they did not possess the kind of uh, avarice and meanness that characterized people who tended to be successful. There's a wonderful uh, scene in Cannery Row where the character of Doc, who's based on Ed Ricketts, and Ed Ricketts was actually the model for several characters in Steinbeck's books, but certainly most famously in, in Cannery Row, where he's literally kind of the same guy that he was in real life. There's a wonderful scene in there where Doc says, you know, what, why is it that people who, um, uh, everything about them is stuff we don't like, you know, they're not nice, they're greedy, they're self-centered, they are unconcerned with the welfare of others, they have no empathy. Uh, why is it that they are so successful in life, whereas the people who are quite the opposite, people who actually feel compassion for others, people who uh, actually are not always trying to take advantage of every situation. Why is it that they tend to not succeed in life? And I think, uh, and you're asking a great question, but I think it was that uh, unique empathy that Steinbeck had and the ability to kind of flip the social equation around so that suddenly the reader sees everything through the eyes of an Oklahoma sharecropper or a, uh, a bindle-stiff farm worker traveling from one, uh, you know, temporary job to the next in the middle of the Depression in California. Uh, we, we, we know that people like that existed. We know that people like that exist now. We so rarely see the world through their eyes. That was really what I think Steinbeck was able to do. I think he was able to get us to um, turn the telescope around. And look to the other end, look at the nearly invisible people that were out there that were people just like us in every respect, except that they were they had somehow fallen through the cracks, become marginalized, been pushed to the side of society, and uh, seemed no longer to be part of really kind of the same 
enterprise that the, the rest of us were in. I, that was his special talent. I think we could use some of that right now. <laughs> uh, we are living through, as you said at the very outset, some of the same problems, many of the same problems that uh, that were uh, that were happening back in the nineteen in the nineteen thirties. And so, uh, to be able to uh, get a handle on a side of the world that we tend to ignore uh, would be would probably be a beneficial thing. And Steinbeck, that's what Steinbeck did. Is Steinbeck someone that you'd like to hang out with? Wow! Wow! Um, let me let me start by saying I just hung out with him for five years. <laughs> uh, I don't think I could feel any more intimately acquainted with him. I know, I know uh, about his work habits. I know about his drinking habits. I know about his sex life. I know about his children. I know about his finances. Um, I know many, many, many. I can account for many of the days of his life. Uh, through documents and through things that I used in my in my research, um, not the same as sitting down with him for you know a would half he, hour. Would he make good company? Would he make good company? He would. He would. He would. He was uh, even though he was uh, fundamentally a shy person and resistant to all all the trappings of fame and celebrity. Even though he hated all that, was, did not consider himself a public person in any way. On an interpersonal level, I think he was a very, very loyal and charming friend. Um, his, the people who were close to Steinbeck um, always commented on the fact that he was a great listener. And this is a quality that we tend to underappreciate in people, uh, but it is a very, very powerful way of connecting with people. If you're able to listen to someone, uh, you can really kind of forge a, um, uh, a connection that, that uh, otherwise might not exist. But to answer your question, um, I, you know, as a biographer, you do not have to love your subject. You don't have to like your subject even, but you do have to be fascinated by them. And they don't have to be perfect, and no one is, but uh, sometimes the larger and more complex the imperfections are, the better the story is. And so Steinbeck, like many people, had, there were multiple sides to his life, and, uh, you know, there was, his, there was his writing and his working life, and there was his personal life. He was married three times, had two sons that he had um, difficult relationships with, and uh, that all contributes to the picture, you know, the, the complete picture of a complicated human being, one of enormous talent, uh, one with kind of equally enormous faults. And, uh, and so uh, I was engaged by that. I liked that. I was very happy to work on this over a period of years. Um, but I, uh, if he were, could somehow spring back to life and we were to hang out together, I don't. I have no idea how that would go. <laughs> we need to take a break here on Constant Wonder. Our guest is Bill Souter, the author of Mad at the World, A Life of John Steinbeck. In just a minute, I'll be back with him to ask him about the book that haunted Steinbeck's life. Stay tuned. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. My guest is William Souter, the author of Mad at the World, A Life of John Steinbeck. Let's consider the title of your book, Mad at the World. How did you land on that? Well, we touched on this a little bit already. As I mentioned, John Steinbeck from a very early age was intolerant of bullies, of anyone taking advantage of another person. Uh, exploiting a you know a difference a power differential of some kind, and that was true as I said whether it was one person or whether it was the uh, the Growers Association in California. This was the uh, sort of official organized uh, uh, group that represented farm interests, big farm interests in California. That was at odds with the the migrants, uh, the migrant farm workers that were pouring into the state. Uh, the the Growers farmers, the big farm interests, they needed these migrants to work the fields, but they also despised them, and it was a very, it was a fraught situation. And when Steinbeck went uh, into the field to report on what was, he had a commission from a, a newspaper in San Francisco to report on the plight of these uh, migrant workers, uh, 
uh, when Steinbeck saw firsthand from himself what was happening, he was absolutely appalled. And I'll just very quickly mention two things. Many people observed when they visited the uh, these migrant camps, which some of them were better than others. There were some government-run camps that were actually fairly clean and, and well-ordered, but many, many, many of these migrants that uh, came into California from Oklahoma and other places ended up just living by the roadside, uh, often in ditches, in terrible, squalid conditions. Um, uh, there were uh, outbreaks of many different diseases. Uh, a lot of them were starving, and uh, when Steinbeck went from camp to camp and actually saw and spoke with these people, he was, um, he was enraged, he was appalled, um, and I think he was deeply, deeply saddened by it. But mainly it was the, the anger that he felt. Uh, and then the other thing I'll just mention very quickly, at one, one point there were, um, you know, it was ironic, these refugees had fled an area that was um, suffering through drought, and in California, at, in the mid-1930s, there was a series of seasons that, where they had terrible floods. And in several instances, um, uh, the flooding was so severe that uh, these migrant workers were sort of trapped in their encampments. And even though the, um, the public services wanted to get aid to them uh, in food, medication, other things they needed, um, the, uh, the the farmers uh, often prevented this from happening. They had squads of vigilantes that would interfere mm. with relief efforts. And um, this probably more than anything, I think, uh, convinced Steinbeck that he had to uh, write a book. And, of course, that book eventually became uh, The Grace of Wrath. So did he see his writing as a form of activism? Well, I, you know, he was, his first wife, Carol, who was very important in his early career and who worked with him on The Grapes of Wrath, she was really kind of its primary editor. She typed the manuscript up as, as Steinbeck was writing it. Um, uh, Carol was uh, uh, more political than Steinbeck was. She encouraged him to um, uh, look at what was happening among union organizing forces in in California, and Steinbeck, I think, was instinctively kind of apolitical, even though later in his life he wrote speeches for um, uh, Adlai Stevenson when he was running for uh, president, and he was friendly with uh, Lyndon Johnson. He, uh, Steinbeck, that just wasn't part of his sensibility. I don't think he saw himself as an activist. I think he saw himself always as a writer and as someone who could... Um, explain to everyone, show everyone what was happening, and let the activists and the politicians take it from there. I think he, I think he saw himself as um, uh, the person who was retrieving from the field the, the information about what was really happening that would allow something to be done about it. Now, later in his life, I want to shift the focus just a little bit here. He, um, he hits the road. And I actually know an English professor who assigns Travels with Charlie to his foreign students um, as an introduction to the great American road trip. Uh, what makes Travels with Charlie so American? Well, I, you know, it's, a, it's interesting. a lot of people love that book, and uh, it's, it's among their favorites of Steinbeck. In, in many cases, they're their absolute favorite. I think it is, as you just said, it, it is the great American road trip. He he essentially circumnavigated the lower 48. You know, he left from his home in New York and kind of went across the northern tier and down the west coast and back through the south and up back up to New York. Uh, and uh, and he did it in a in a truck that had a camper top on the back. So uh, I think we we all relate to this this idea of kind of the, being footloose in America. Uh, free to travel, free to spend the night wherever you happen to land at the end of the day. And Steinbeck's purpose was to um, reacquaint himself with uh, with ordinary people who I think he felt he had lost touch with after living in New York for a number of years. And I think he wanted to get back to that um, kind of on-the-ground, in-person, direct contact that he'd had uh, years before when he was in, in California with, uh, with regular people and to kind of take the temperature and report back. Now, we know because of some investigative uh, reporting that has since been done that Steinbeck 
uh, actually engaged in fictionalizing some of this trip. He made up a few things, a few scenes, a few episodes, a few people. Um, and I think if you read the book with that, that understanding, it's still just as good and in some ways better. It is pure Steinbeck, um, a, a little bit of reality, uh, you know, laced with a little bit of imagination. And it creates this kind of uh, uh, magical uh, uh, journey across America and across the American psyche from a particular point in time. And, um, you know, Charlie, of course, is his dog, his standard poodle which uh, rode shotgun in the seat beside him during this trip. And um, any story with a dog in it uh, is bound to charm. <laughs> now, there is this one book that kind of hung over his life, kind of haunted him. It's uh, Thomas Mallory's Mort Dar- Darthur. And uh, tell us about his kind of fixation on this book, even to the end of his life. Well, Mort Arthur is the story of the legend of King Arthur, and it's been the basis for a number of, uh, of works, in, in, including um, uh, Camelot, the, the Broadway play. Uh, it's the story of a, you know, a, a king in early England, just after the kind of Roman period, and it captivated Steinbeck from a very, very early age. I think when he was about 10 years old, his aunt gave him a, um, a children's version of Mort Darthur, which was simplified a little bit. But it still had uh, a lot of, uh, of uh, archaic expressions and Middle English words in it that, he, that fascinated Steinbeck. He had struggled as a kid to learn how to read. But when he got this book and, and um, became absorbed in both the story and in the language. It really changed his outlook. And I think probably more than any other thing that, that ever happened to him, that's what uh, convinced him that he wanted to be a writer. He, he loved the story. Um, he loved the language that was used. He and his little sister uh, uh, memorized some of, these, uh, some of these archaic English expressions and actually would speak to each other in Middle English when they were with other kids. <laughs> and uh, everyone thought it was some sort of secret language that they had developed that kind of sounded a little bit like English but really wasn't. But they lifted it all from, from Thomas Mallory's book. And you're quite right. Steinbeck was, um, was captivated by this story throughout his life. Um, in a couple of his books, he attempted to, um, you know, kind of make the relationships seem a little bit like, um, you know, the Arthurian round table when groups of characters, uh, in his mind, kind of could be seen as knights of the round table. And, and, uh, and then uh, in the late 1950s, he uh, decided to actually go to England and try to uh, reconstruct and translate from the original manuscripts the story of King Arthur, and his plan was to put it into some um, species of contemporary English. He never quite figured out whether he was going to just use, um, you know, common everyday conversational English or some hybrid of the uh, of the older English with uh, with more modern syntax. Um, and that project uh, was not completed in his lifetime. And uh, this is a source of enormous frustration to Steinbeck. He, the, the early drafts of that were um, his agent and his editor did not like what he was doing. And, and uh, um, he really, that was probably a failure that, that um, uh, haunted him as much as, as any other. We should say that um, I think part of what drew Steinbeck to this story was that nobody knows how much, if any of it, is true. It, it is certainly a myth, and it may be a myth that's based in part on real events and real people. No one knows for sure if there was a King Arthur, if there was a round table, if there was anything that might actually be construed as Camelot that existed back in uh, England centuries ago. Uh, that's part of the sedu- seductiveness of the story. Uh, I, think it, I think it's actually what gives it, imbues it with a sort of magical attraction for people like Steinbeck, uh, the idea that um, uh, this might be real and it might not be, and it might be some, um, you know, inter, um, uh, in some space between reality and mythology. We've had as our guest today William Souter, the author of Mad at the World, A Life of John Steinbeck. Thanks so much for your insight today. Thank you so much. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. 
When we come back from a short break, true stories from Americans who lived through the Great Depression. We'll speak with the author of Soul of a People, coming up in just one minute on Constant Wonder. John Steinbeck is perhaps the most famous voice of the common person during the Great Depression of the 1930s, but there were lots of voices out there, voices of real people with some remarkable experiences. During the Depression, the federal government sponsored unemployed teachers, writers, historians, and artists to uncover stories from all over the country. It was a jobs program, but it also produced a kind of encyclopedia of American experience and folklore from the early 20th century. To learn more, Marcus Smith spoke with David A. Taylor, the author of Soul of a People, the WPA Writers Project Uncovers Depression America. Here's a highlight from that conversation. My wife and I were taking a cross-country trip, and a friend dug out from her attic a copy of the WPA Guide to New Orleans as we were heading in that direction. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll take it, but I didn't expect anything from the a book from the 1930s to tell me anything really about the city now. Um, but once we got there and its coverage, its depth of, uh, of culture and traditions and uh, block by block look at the history, uh, I, was, I was fascinated. This just seems improbable because uh, you're taking a trip to New Orleans and somebody pulls out a book. Is the book or brochure from the 30s? It was a book from the 30s that had actually been republished as a paperback in the uh, 80s, um, so, but it was still pretty beat up by the time uh, I borrowed it. Take us into that guide that you held. What, what did it seem to have as its purpose? Was it supposed to be something like a souvenir or a tour guide? It was, uh, it was supposed to be part tour guide and part history, uh, local history. And so, uh, as you mentioned about um, these writers on the WPA researching these guidebooks, they were actually uh, they were recruited state by state, and they were researching their own homes. Uh, and so this guidebook was um, gathered and put together by people from New Orleans, uh, both like walking tours and, and driving guides around there, but also uh, it had sections about social history and, and economic history. So I think one of the parts that fascinated me, they, they had, uh, like you see in guidebooks today, you'll see a section about uh, the cemeteries in New Orleans. Well, this had that, but it also had kind of the social history of like what grave diggers were being paid for in the cemeteries in New Orleans in the 1850s and how a yellow fever epidemic affected their, their wages. So these things about how life at, at the street level was affected uh, uh, just really surprised me at every page. So you're going through this and you're reading the stories and at some point you say, this isn't the only guidebook, there's got to be more. You're right. You're right. I realized this is part of a series, uh, and I thought so. My initial interest was, wow, these. Uh, I'll look into these series of books. I found the WPA uh, guide to Virginia, where I grew up, and um, and I started to uh, talk with people who use these guidebooks, and I found that a lot of journalists, a lot of historians, would still travel with these old guidebooks to uh, learn about the backgrounds of of the places where they were traveling. Now, I'm not unfamiliar with this kind of literature, uh, but it generally comes from, well, sometimes it can come from a governmental agency here and where I live in Utah. I know there's some governmental bureau that uh, promotes tourism, right? We've got, you know, Delicate Arch and we want people to come see it. And so uh, there can be funds that, that get funneled into this. But was this, was this like the first time this ever happened for the United States to be involved in tax dollars promoting this kind of material? You know, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the, the make-work projects, what they call to, to try to um, prime the pump of the economy by getting people uh, to work on public projects like the CCC um, parks and the dams that the, the, the Works Progress Administration built, um, there was, this was the first one where actually uh, writers 
kind of demonstrated against, you know, they were, they were feeling left out of these efforts. And they said, well, we, you know, we're white-collar workers, maybe. We, we, uh, we're clerks and things, but we need, uh, you know, paychecks, too. And so they made the case, and, and Congress supported a small bit of the money for the WPA to go um, towards a writer's project. But they didn't really even know what that would mean at the start. Um, and the idea, as you mentioned, of trying to harness uh, you know, creative writers to write for the, the government was, uh, was a, a noble and absurd uh, undertaking to start with. It wasn't until somebody thought, well, maybe they can be um, put to use by uh, you know, encouraging a, a travel culture, the, the, the road you know, the driving culture was just getting started. So maybe they could write guidebooks that would encourage people to drive uh, to different places and different landmarks and uh, at least uh, ostensibly help um, local economies that way. Yeah, I can just imagine being a legislator and having this kind of a thing proposed. And nowadays, everybody would be talking about, well, is it going to really prime the pump of tourism? But I'm not sure that, that that kind of thinking was really in place yet from the way you describe it. These American guides uh, have been described as maybe a mirror on America, but not necessarily in those days where they seen as we're going to get tourists on the road. Actually, they did think that, well, okay, if they have driving um – uh, you know, the, the, the director of the project, a former journalist named Henry Alsberg, uh, did once they had that idea of guidebooks, he said, well, let's, uh, yeah, he put the word out that this could uh, get people to look into uh, treasures in their ho- people's home states, learn more about the history, and go visit some of these landmarks. Um, so it was, he, he did have uh, an idea that wasn't, he didn't want to support just kind of Chamber of Commerce propaganda. He wanted to have them as authentic histories. That was sort of his uh, journalistic interest. Um, but he did uh, realize that politically it needed to have uh, some economic uh, potential benefit. How big was this undertaking? Did it cover the whole country? It did. Um, uh, all at that point, uh, 48 states plus uh, Puerto Rico and um, uh, and Washington D.C. Uh, also, there were a number of city guides, including the uh, the Washington D.C. guide. Um, so yeah, it was an, a national uh, program, and even organizing at the state level, you know, such a, a wide program uh, had, as you can imagine, uh, huge hurdles. You know, a lot of the public discourse during the Great Depression coming from uh, public leaders was to inspire people and motivate them and, and get them moving. I, I know the story, for example, of here in Utah, there was a little town where a public leader went to go visit, got a couple of mile, uh, a couple of hours away from the capital city, found a bunch of unemployed workers sitting on the steps at City Hall, and they're whittling away on sticks. And he, in front of the post office, I think the story goes, and, and, and he said... Gentlemen, you should be up doing some productive work. And they said, we don't even have to do this if we don't want to. You know? And they're just <laughs> sitting there. And, and I'm just wondering if this American Guide series was upbeat in its, in its rhetoric, in the way it, it, it talked about the country and about where, what places are like. You know, because of the times uh, that people were, you know, even to get on this project, you had to prove that you had no other income you had to prove that you were jobless and um and that was the attitudes around the country at that point were were pretty pretty desperate so i think if to be uh, just kind of upbeat uh, at that point you would have had to have been almost delusional so i think a lot of the people who came onto the project they may they were often proud of where they were from but they many of them had very clear vision of what was going right and what was going wrong around them. Uh, and so what you find, I, I used the, the guide to Nebraska um, for, to write uh, an article for Smithsonian um, before, on the way towards uh, writing my book. And the Nebraska guide was great. It, it, it was proud of the histories and people in the state, but it was, like many people uh, in the public, skeptical of institutions. And so um, in putting together the, the uh, history sections and the, uh, 
the driving route guides. Uh, it reflected really a lot of uh, public views of, of America, both uh, positive and negative. Well, this is kind of exciting to me because it sounds like you're having riders who are de- giving their pictures with some real integrity, trying to get it right, trying to be honest about it. Is that the way these things read? It is. Uh, not all of them, and they vary a lot, um, but they did have a um, – the national editors had a system in place to try to ensure quality and that these were based on you know, the historical documents they were – that the that the landmarks that they were reporting that there was some backup uh, to to support that, um, and there were systems for making sure that the final products were were publishable and of good quality. Um, but within that, they wanted uh, the state uh, voices to come through. They didn't want to iron it out into uh, just uh, have a, a homogenous editorial voice. And so you do find, for example, the humor in the Nebraska Guide uh, was really. Um, both wry, and it comes through in the stories that they shared uh, from local places. Uh, the New Orleans Guide, also uh, the editor of that, a man named Elisle Saxon, he had been a journalist as well as a novelist, and um, and that comes through uh, in how that guide reads. Uh, and you know, the the guide to uh, Idaho was um, put together basically by one um, novelist who was uh, out of work, uh, Vardis Fisher, who later became famous, but at that point um, he had no alternatives, and uh, he really do get a sense of that voice guiding his tours through, through the mountains, and he was, if anything, a skeptic. So you have described these writers who made contributions to this series, who worked for it, who earned their, their living from it. They weren't hacks at all. They were published, uh, successful writers, and the Depression undercut their careers? I wouldn't quite say that. Um, some of them uh, had been published, and uh, I think they reserved about uh, one in ten positions on the uh, project for people who had been published. So you get uh, some editorial qualities. For example, a young John Cheever had had some stories published, and he got on uh, the job as an editor. But most of them uh, either had not been published or were had been out of work for a while. So they did not have confidence as storytellers. But uh, in the course of gathering interviews and reporting on the places where they were from, they gained uh, confidence, and, uh, and the products show that. I can't help but think of those very touching photographs that I think all of us are familiar with that come from the era of the Great Depression. There were famous photographers going about documenting this. I think of Dorothea Lang, I think is the name of one of them. People sitting, uh, children, mothers. It's quite clear they, they might be displaced. It could be Dust Bowl stuff. There's all kinds of human suffering. If that era was producing this kind of photographic material, how would you compare... The the the, uh, the guides, the American guides, were they that? Were they ever that brutal in in depicting what people were suffering? They a number of them were. In fact, uh, you know, that the, the photographers you mentioned were they were working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So their larger project was to show what life was like for farmers during that time uh, and farm families. And so. Uh, in this, uh, their counterpart in, in the guidebooks, the uh, federal writers were showing what life was like for people, both in the countryside and in, in the cities. They were um, so you get in the, the Nebraska guidebook the descriptions of uh, of Omaha, uh, descriptions of uh, squares where unemployed people gathered and homeless people were looking for handouts and soup kitchens, and uh, it's that's where the people start to show the resilience that they see, uh, and in some cases the desperation, um, but they, they are not trying to sugarcoat uh, what the country is facing at that point. I think a lot of them saw this, um, these guidebooks, that this writing w- would be a kind of a testament to their time. Are there characters that emerge that you say, oh, that's quite the story of, of one individual? Some of the writers, there was a, a writer in the, uh, for the Nebraska guidebook, uh, a nurse who, uh, you know, f- for the guidebooks and then later um, separately, they, the, the writers would be interviewing uh, everyday people and getting their life stories down. So there's a whole 
collection of thousands of life stories um, on the Library of Congress uh, website now. Um, but they were gathered state by state. And so this nurse uh, in a town in Nebraska basically interviewed a cross-section of that town, from hotel owner to the uh, factory worker, uh, across um, ethnic and uh, gender backgrounds, and she really got into the work. It was fascinating to see. And then she later uh, wrote a, a local history herself. Um, another actually there in, in Utah, uh, May Swenson, um, who later became uh, a poet and acknowledged as one of the, the great poets of the 20th century, in fact. She um, grew up uh, in an, a sweet, originally a Swedish family. Her one of the oldest of 10 kids. And after graduating from college in 1934, she moved to New York and that's where she had to get a job. And uh, she got a job on the Federal Writers Project and she was interviewing people in New York. Um, And so she went to people's homes and wrote down with really incisive uh, an eye for the detail of um, to describe these people and how, where they were living. Uh, so one of the stories that she gathered um, in New York was called Tall Tales uh, in the Lumberjack Region. And she um, interviewed uh, this guy. He was in his 70s at the time she interviewed him in the 1930s. So he was remembering uh, kind of a fascinating story from his youth in Wisconsin. And just the voice that comes through uh, in her rendering of that, that you can find uh, by searching for uh, you know, WPA Life Histories on the Library of Congress site, uh, uh, Mae Swenson. And uh, it's just a fascinating voice that comes through uh, of, uh, that she's giving honor to, to just how he expresses himself and the digressions he takes uh, to tell a story. And I think you see that also, I found that in uh, Ralph Ellison, who we know is uh, you know, just a fantastic novelist later uh, for Invisible Man. And he uh, did not think of himself as a writer exactly when he got a young man, uh, had to drop out of college. He, he got to New York. He was originally from Oklahoma City. Um, and he also became a, an interviewer for the Federal Writers Project. And he was, uh, you know, Honey's ear, listening to people, how they talked about their lives. And that's really influenced how he approached his fiction and approached American stories uh, for the rest of his life. And now you know how Ralph Ellison got his start as a writer. That was Marcus Smith speaking with David A. Taylor, the author of Soul of a People, the WPA Writers Project Uncovers Depression in America. Remember that you can enjoy our Constant Wonder Conversations quite conveniently on demand or as a podcast. The place to learn more about us is byuradio.org. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.